Okay. So as Nathaniel mentioned, um, uh, I recently published a, a book uh, entitled Christian Martyrs Under Islam. And there you see the image uh, of the cover in front of you. Um, and my lecture today is basically going to uh, distill some of the key arguments and observations that I make in that book. Um, my goal, however, is to situate those um, specific, uh, sometimes more technical scholarly arguments um, in a wider historical perspective. Um, I realize that we may have people uh, on the call who are specialists, who have studied the subject of Christianity in the Middle East, who may have studied uh, Islamic history and related fields. Um, but I'm going to assume that for most of you, this is relatively uh, uh, terra incognita. So I'm going to begin with some basics um, and then zoom in on the slightly narrower subject uh, of the book, namely these Christian martyrs uh, who were executed and then later venerated as saints uh, during the first three centuries uh, of Islamic rule. Um, now, in order to understand the situation of Christianity in the early Islamic period, we have to know something of what came before. Um, late antiquity, as many of you will know, is the term that scholars use to describe uh, roughly the period from the third century AD, the end of the third century, uh, until, say, the seventh or the eighth century AD. Um, this is the world that an older generation of historians used to describe as the Dark Age, uh, but nowadays we refer to it as late antiquity. And one of the defining storylines, if not the central storyline of the period, was the rise of Christianity. Um, most of us associate early Christianity with the Roman Empire, um, places like Rome, like Athens, Alexandria, and other important cities uh, around that important body of water. But it's extremely important to remember that Christianity spread from Palestine, not just west in the direction of Rome, but it also spread east. Um, and in front of you, you have two visual reminders of this. On the left, uh, a coin minted by the first Roman emperor uh, to publicly convert to Christianity. And of course, this was Constantine um, converted after the famous Battle of the Milvian Bridge in 312. This coin minted not far from me in London uh, around the year 320. Uh, and on your right, uh, an image and a window into a culture that may be less familiar to you. And this is the world of Christianity east of the Tigris and the Euphrates River. As I mentioned, Christianity goes east as much as it goes west in antiquity. And if you want to understand the situation of the church uh, in the early Islamic world, you need to understand both of these lungs of ancient Christian culture. Um, when I refer to Christianity east of the Tigris and the Euphrates, I'm referring to the ancient Christian communities who were subjects of the Sasanian kings. The Sasanians were the last great uh, Persian dynasty of antiquity deposed by the Arabs in the middle of the 7th century. Um, they themselves were Zoroastrians, but uh, a significant and growing portion of their population was Christian, and that population was concentrated mainly in Iraq itself, uh, as well as points further east, such as Khuzestan province in southwestern Iran. Uh, but Christianity at this point was not quite the global phenomenon that we associate today, uh, but was uh, much, uh, but had a footprint that was much bigger, much more expansive, and still more diverse than that of the Roman Empire. The other thing to observe, as by way of situating our story, is to say something of the communal divisions among ancient Christian communities. Uh, Christianity comes in many shapes and sizes today, uh, as it did in the ancient world. And many of these uh, divisions, which manifested themselves as institutional schisms, independent churches, um, ultimately went back to disagreements 
uh, over contentious points of theology. And many of these issues were worked out or rather um, uh, worked out for one side, but unresolved for the other um, at important meetings of bishops known as ecumenical councils. At least in the Roman Empire, these were convened under the auspices of the Roman Empire and were charged with hammering out definitions of orthodoxy and by the same token, hammering out definitions of heresy. So uh, the winning side gained the patronage of the state. Uh, the losing side uh, was unfortunate to be cast out from imperial patronage uh, and to spin off on their own. Now, some uh, Christian movements, some Christian churches in antiquity um, indeed petered out. This is the story most famously um, of the Arian church, uh, which was condemned as heretical in the wake of the Council of Nicaea in 325. But other losing parties uh, in the wake of these ecumenical councils uh, continued to exist and indeed thrived. And many of these communities were based in the lands uh, that we today associate with the Middle East and the Islamic world. Um, to speak about the largest of these uh, theological configurations, uh, we have the Chalcedonian churches. These are churches which sided with the imperial position at the Council of Chalcedon in the year, in the year 451. Um, this was a council that attempted to resolve uh, the disputed uh, matter uh, of the nature of the second person of the Trinity. Uh, was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, uh, fully man? Was he fully God or was he a mingling of human and divine? And basically the, the position that prevailed at that council um, became the favored position of the Byzantine Imperial Church, uh, as well as the Catholic Church, uh, the Latin Church, uh, based in Rome. And from that point onward would become the official theology of their later medieval incarnations, namely uh, the Greek Orthodox Church, uh, the Church in Russia, the Church in places like Bulgaria, and then the Roman Catholic Church in the full medieval sense of the term in the West. Now, along with the Chalcedonian churches, we had uh, we have uh, Christian communities uh, who rejected uh, the edicts of the council, and these and these communities are broadly known as non-Chalcedonian. Um, there are a number of communities that dissented from the council. Uh, the most important of these uh, were the West Syrians, um, who come to be known as the Syrian Orthodox, uh, as well as the Copts in Egypt. Along with these, uh, there was an extremely significant Christian church outside the borders of the Roman Empire in the Sasanian lands, as I mentioned just a minute ago. And these were Christians uh, known as uh, East Syrians or members of the Church of the East. Um, for those of you who are students of theology, these are the communities that are known by their opponents as Nestorians. So the majority of Christians East of the Roman Empire are members of this Church of the East. Incidentally, many of you will probably have followed the news of Pope Francis's uh, pastoral visit to Iraq uh, about two weeks ago. Um, the uh, Christians uh, in Iraq today are the descendants of members of this Church of the East. Uh, the, uh, a significant portion, the majority uh, of the Church of the East, was reconciled uh, with the Church of Rome in the early modern period, thus giving rise to what is now known as the, Chal uh, the, uh, um, the um, uh, Chaldean Church of the East but its origins are within this so-called Nestorian movement from antiquity. And then the final group to mention, uh, probably the smallest uh, of these communities is the Monothelite church. This is a community that emerged out of theological controversies in the sixth and especially the seventh century. Uh, the Monothelite church, uh, which held to the doctrine of Christ having two wills, or excuse me, two natures, but a single will, um, would eventually evolve and become what is today known as the Maronite church, which is fully in communion with the church in Rome. 
So those are the major theological configurations. And as a result of theological disagreements, we get institutional divisions on the ground. What is interesting about this story is that it's largely set within lands that we today don't necessarily associate with the beating heart of world Christianity. Much of this action unfolds in what we today regard as the Islamic world. Uh, and indeed, uh, from the beginning of the 7th century uh, through the 8th, um, the former territories of the Byzantine Empire, uh, as well the choice territories of the Byzantine Empire, including places like Egypt, Palestine, uh, Syria, and elsewhere, uh, and the entirety of the uh, Sasanian Empire fell under the rule uh, of a new power, uh, that of the uh, Arab Muslims, uh, who originated in the region of the Hejaz in what is today Western Arabia. And the subject of the lecture is basically to explain how uh, the creation of an Islamic uh, empire, the creation of an Islamic polity that, as you can see on the screen, stretched from the Atlantic Ocean in the West all the way to Central Asia in the East, how that Islamic empire, uh, which at the beginning had relatively few Muslims, um, came to transform into a society that not only was an Islamic empire, or rather a collection of Islamic empires, the further in time we go, but also the societies within the borders of this empire and within the borders of those successor states also became predominantly Muslim. So that's the story I want to tell, uh, talk about today and hope to give you a bit of insight on. Okay, so as I like to always tell my students, one of the great surprises of studying early Islamic history is that the creation of an Islamic empire does not necessarily entail the creation of a predominantly Muslim society, at least at the beginning. And indeed, most historians would agree that the population of this early Islamic empire remains majority non-Muslim for uh, generations and generations, if not centuries after the initial Arab conquests. Um, so this is a story of a, of an Arab, of a predominantly Arab uh, Muslim political elite ruling over a sea of largely non-Muslims. And when it comes to the former territories of the Byzantine Empire, when it comes to the lands of North Africa, when it comes to Al-Andalus, uh, the Iberian Peninsula, as well as important areas in the former Sasanian Empire, we're talking about demographic majorities that were Christian. Now, how could we typify relations between these two communities in the early Islamic period? What are the basic rules of engagement between Muslims and non-Muslims? Well, the Islamic tradition draws a distinction between two different kinds of religious outsiders. Um, this is language that comes from the Quran is developed by Muslim jurists and theologians over time. There are pagans, what is known in Arabic as mushrikun, alongside uh, a broad group known as people of the book, the al-kitab. Now, mushrikun basically refer to polytheists, people who worship more than one god. Um, and under the uh, consensus views of later jurists, these people were uh, essentially given the option of uh, converting to Islam and giving up their polytheistic ways or being killed. So this stands in distinction to the historic and classic treatment of the people of the book, namely Christians and Jews, under Islamic law, which is that these people were entitled uh, to uh, continue practicing their monotheistic religions, provided they paid uh, tribute to the state in the form of a poll tax, famous, uh, usually referred to as the, known by the name the jizya in Arabic, um, and provided that they submitted uh, to a, a range of, uh, of rules and regulations that were intended to establish hierarchy between them and their Muslim rulers. And this legal regime is usually referred to as the vimmi regime. Vimmi is an Arabic word which basically means a protected person. So there's been a lot of ink spilled by historians as well as writers in 
public sphere about whether this culture, whether these relations between Muslims and non-Muslims amounted to tolerance or intolerance. You'll find partisans on both sides of the issue. Now, as a historian of the period, interested in trying to tell an accurate or give an accurate account of the way in which relations worked on the ground, I find categories such as tolerance and intolerance relatively unhelpful. Uh, these are modern categories, uh, um, um, and by using them, we run the risk of importing modern uh, assumptions about the meaning of tolerance, the meaning of intolerance into pre-modern societies in which these sorts of moral debates, in which these moral definitions don't register in quite the same way. So when I think about this Dhimmi regime, and when I think about relations between Muslims and non-Muslims in the early period, I think that these rules basically exist as a way of maintaining an imperial hierarchy, a hierarchy in which Arabs and Muslims were at the top of the pecking order, and in which there were an array of non-Muslim groups below who were defined as subjects by virtue of their religion, but were also subjects in the more general sense in which any conquering society, any imperial society had rulers and subjects, people on top and people down below. And especially in the early period, the top priority for the people at the top of the pecking order, the Arabs and the Muslims, was not religious persecution at all, but rather was resource extraction. So the history of Muslim-non-Muslim relations, especially when it comes to groups like Christians, Jews, and Zoroastrians, the three biggest groups, it is basically a story of, um, of, um, of, of, uh, of allowing these people to carry on as they wish, to regulate their, inf their internal affairs as they please, provided they recognize the suzerainty of the state and provided they uh, paid tribute in the form of taxes, uh, among other uh, legal requirements. Um, now, uh, when Nathaniel asked me to give a title for this lecture, um, I gave a slightly provocative one that I think many of you will know having signed up. And I think the title of the lecture was something like, what role did violence play in the conversion or the transformation of the predominantly Christian Near East of late antiquity into the predominantly Muslim world that we know today? And without getting into all of the nuances and the long and complex history of this, the key takeaway is that there is relatively little evidence of forced conversion of Christian populations in the early Islamic period and indeed throughout the medieval Islamic Middle Ages. Now, one way we know this, one way we can kind of typify uh, relations between Muslims and non-Muslims in this early period as a relatively uh, irenic story, a story of, of people kind of coexisting, not in, a, in an idealized, rosy, moralistic sense, but rather in a pragmatic sense of people who share a society um, and live side by side. One way in which we can know this is to track the history of conversion. And as I mentioned, the history of conversion is not the story of rapid religious change in the immediate wake of military conquest, but is rather a story of extremely slow uh, religious change culminating um, in the gradual emergence of Muslim majorities in many of these key areas of what we typically regard as the Islamic world. We don't really know precisely when Muslim majorities form in many of these key areas. Basically, we don't have reliable demographic data until uh, far later periods in history. Um, so these are based on best, best guesses, um, careful reading of medieval sources. Uh, but by most historians' estimates, probably a place like Syria becomes majority Muslim uh, as late as the 12th and the 13th centuries, especially in the wake of the Crusades. Um, a place like Egypt, in, in an equally central uh, region in the history of Islamic civilization, may have become majority Muslim even later, uh, as late as, say, the 14th or the 15th centuries. So um, these simple facts um, kind of uh, in and of themselves um, stand athwart 
easy arguments that one sees bandied around in public, even in university classrooms, um, that, that look upon religious change as being something that was extremely rapid and often very violent. The evidence simply does not bear this out, and we see this in the very, very slow pace of conversion. Um, very quickly, because you're a Columbia University audience, um, I want to flag the extremely famous and influential book uh, by Richard Bullitt, a very distinguished uh, historian uh, of Islamic civilizations uh, who spent his career at Columbia and is uh, very much still with us in writing. Um, this is this book whose cover you see on the screen um, is the key text uh, uh, for many of us who study uh, the history of conversion to Islam. Um, so if you see it on the bookshelf, or if you happen to come across Professor Bullitt while you're walking across campus, um, stop him and ask. Um, this is an extremely important uh, and interesting book. Okay, so to get to the, uh, the, the core of my presentation uh, and to explain what led me into this subject, as I mentioned, we, we have relatively little reliable data about the history of conversion at this time. We don't have censuses, we don't have reliable demographic data, uh, we don't have numerical accountings of people and where they live and what they believed and where they worshiped on a Friday, Saturday, or Sunday in the way that modern states collect today. We simply don't have that for the vast majority of medieval states, including the ones that I study in the medieval Middle East. So how do we kind of get around this source problem to understand the phenomenon of conversion from a different angle? So for my PhD thesis at Princeton, which I later uh, transformed into a book, um, I settled on a group of relatively untapped sources that had a great deal to say about conversion to Islam, but not, had not been really read with this purpose in mind. And the body of sources to which I'm referring are lives of martyrs. That is to say, individuals uh, who were alive during the first two to three centuries of Islamic rule in many of these majority Christian areas that I've described, um, and who uh, suffered violent death, often at the hands of Muslim authorities, for a range of offenses, many of which hinged on questions of religious change, as we'll see, questions of conversion and apostasy. Um, as I'll explain in a minute, these sources are by no means straightforward. Many of them float precariously on the edge between fact and fiction. But nonetheless, these struck me as a body of evidence that was tremendously rich and which, if handled properly, could reveal things about this bigger story about religious change, how the predominantly Christian Near East of late antiquity became the majority Muslim region that we know by the later Middle Ages and we certainly know today. So I spent many years reading these texts written across a, a wide array of ancient and medieval languages, um, trying to understand them within their historical context, but also as literary works, as, as accounts of potentially real events, but also as works of literature with messages for us as readers and certainly also for their medieval audiences. And on the screen in front of you, you see more or less the tally of individual martyrs uh, that I uh, picked up, that I discovered in the course of my research. Um, when I refer to a martyr, this is not my own designation. Um, uh, the, the, the term martyr is a term that is, uh, or rather a title that is applied uh, by these uh, churches across the early Islamic world for individuals who ran afoul of the Muslim state um, and were later uh, revered as saints, revealed, revered as heroes of the church. And as saints, often had voluminous biographical traditions that would uh, uh, emerge about them. Uh, they would become the subject of uh, 
annual commemorations, namely feast days, pilgrimages, as I mentioned, biographies and the rest. So this represents the historical, liturgical, and hagiographical residue of the lives of, of actual people. So my task as the historian was to, the best of my ability, peer, peel back these layers and try to see these people on their own terms within their 7th, 8th, and ninth century contexts. Um, I should say finally that the statistics that you see in the screen in front of you are measures of individuals who were commemorated as saints. They are in no, uh, in no way measures of absolute numbers of Christians who were executed at this time, nor should they necessarily be taken as representative of wider trends in the history of Islamization and de-Christianization. But I'll talk more about that near the end of my presentation. All right, so you've seen the numbers. Uh, how do these groups of martyrs shake out? They belong to distinct cohorts. Let me tell you about them very briefly. Well, the first and most significant group of martyrs of the early Islamic period were Christians who converted to Islam and then returned to Christianity. And the key point here is that uh, apostasy, that is to say leaving Islam, came to be considered a capital offense among Muslim jurists from a relatively early point. So an individual who was born as a Christian uh, converted to the religion of the Arab conquerors and then decided to return to his or her natal faith uh, ended up risking uh, a serious capital offense. One assumes that many of these people who flip-flopped in and out of Islam did so with relative impunity, um, and their experiences are more or less lost to the historical record. But thanks to the lives of the martyrs, we know of certain individuals who flip-flopped in and out of Islam, ran afoul of the authorities, and were killed, and therefore we can say something about their lives. So that is the single largest group of martyrs that I study. The second group, which we might view as a subset of the first group, are Muslims who converted to Christianity without really any prior acquaintance with the religion. Uh, in the book, I refer to them as true apostates, in contrast to the flip-floppers in group one. Um, again, essentially executed for apostasy, executed for the same crime uh, of abandoning Islam, but in some ways their renunciation of the ruling religion was even more dramatic because in many cases, these martyrs were apparently members of the ruling class not insignificant numbers of them were high profile Muslims. And so their renunciation of Islam uh, must have had a more significant social impact than that of Christians who were flip-flopping and ultimately returned to their original faith. And the final group uh, or the final significant group were Christians executed for blasphemy. Blasphemy, most especially against the Prophet Muhammad, the sin of slandering uh, the founding figure of the Muslim faith. Um, this was also uh, considered a capital offense under early Islamic law, though the legal debate around blasphemy crystallized uh, more slowly uh, than did the debate uh, around apostasy. Basically, blasphemy came to be seen as a subcategory of apostasy, um, an expression of the same infidelity to the Muslim faith, but because one could blaspheme within Islam as much as outside Islam. A Muslim could slander the Prophet Muhammad as much as a Christian could. Um, the debate was more complex and often more nuanced. So those are the three major groups of martyrs uh, that I explore in the book, and I'll now tell you about. And finally, just to flag a, a major methodological issue, uh, uh, something that I constantly confronted in the course of my research and which invariably comes up when I speak about the book now is, is any of this material reliable? Um, as I mentioned, the core sources at the heart of the book are lives of saints. Um, any of you who have studied uh, the lives of saints, this is a genre known uh, as hagiography, 
um, will know that many of these texts are far from straightforward. These are not uh, per se straight uh, biographies, straight accounts of facts, but rather are biographies that are written with the goal of valorizing whole people and exemplifying certain spiritual virtues. So um, we have to read these texts with an eye to the existence of possible historical information. It's one of the central claims in the book. These are not mere flights of fancy, but we have to constantly read the sources with an eye to the genre to which they belong, namely the conventions and the recurring characteristics of hagiography, a genre which existed not just in among Christians in the Islamic world, but also existed among a wide array of Christians in ancient and medieval societies and is still very much with us today. So as I tell you about a few of the most interesting martyrs, I want you to keep this in mind. What is the line between fact and fiction with the sources? What is the line between reality and representation? What is the difference between history and hagiography? Okay, so the first one that I want to briefly tell you about is a martyr known as Abdel Masih al-Ghassani. Abdel Masih is an Arabic word which means the servant of Christ. Ghassani is the name of an important Christian Arab tribe to which this martyr belonged. Um, his life, his biography was written in Arabic, making it one of the earliest known or earliest surviving examples of Christian Arabic literature. Um, it tells the story of, uh, of, of a young man um, who was born into an important, as I said, Christian Arab tribe, who uh, apparently embarks on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem with a group of friends. Um, according to the story, he gets distracted, and instead of going to the Holy City, he embarks for the Byzantine frontier in the, in the north of Syria. He goes along with members of his tribe who have gone over to Islam. And there he's described as essentially slipping into Islam, converting to Islam almost uh, accidentally um, through the process and through the act of waging jihad, of, of fighting the, uh, the Christian infidel on the other side uh, of the frontier. And we're told that this experience carries on for something like 12, 13 years. Um, during one winter, he is described as, uh, as, 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 as stopping in the important city of Baalbek today in Lebanon, where he encounters a priest. Um, he hears the priest reading the gospel aloud. This is a profoundly moving experience. It prompts him to reexamine his life. He renounces uh, his Islamic faith, goes back to Christianity, and thereafter embarks uh, on the life of monasticism, ascending to the role of the hegumenos, namely the abbot, uh, of the extremely important monastery of St. Catherine's at Mount Sinai. Uh, as you'll see on the screen in front of you, this is a, a community that exists today and whose origins date back to the sixth century. So according to the life, Abdul Masih becomes the head of this community. And as the story develops, um, he is later spotted by several members, uh, several of his former raiding companions, these Muslims along whom he waged jihad, who spot him, accuse him of apostasy. He refuses to renounce his Christian faith uh, and is ultimately killed. Um, I realize this is a, a, a kind of a, a, a skimming over of an incredible amount of detail, much of a very interesting detail. But for me, the life of Abdul Messiah is interesting because it tells us something about uh, the pressure that Arab Christians possibly felt to convert. Um, it tells us something interesting about the manner in which uh, martyrdom narratives from a very, very early date were written in the language of Islam. As I mentioned, the biography of Abdul Messiah is written in Arabic a language that is shared across many different religious groups, but first and foremost was the sacred language of Islam. We see in the life of Abdul Messiah how conversion was a social experience, how the embrace of the new religion took place uh, in the midst of kind of travel, friendship uh, with members of his own tribe who adhered to a different religion. 
Um, we see the ambiguity around conversion. The text never really speaks about Abdul Masih professing um, the Islamic, uh, you know, the profession of faith, the Shahada, that there is one God, there is no God but God, and Muhammad is the prophet of God. We find no ritualized uh, act of conversion. We see him almost slipping into Islam, or at least how, that's how the text portrays it. And finally, the life of this martyr highlights the all-important kind of monastic context uh, for many of these texts. Uh, these are stories that were uh, almost universally written by monks, and many of the heroes of these texts were themselves monks or became monks in the course of their religious journeys. So that, in a word, is the life of Abdel Messier. Another one of my favorite martyrs is uh, uh, an individual known as Bachus, and the life of Bachus was written in Greek. Um, Bachus was born uh, to a Christian family in coastal uh, Palestine, north of uh, Gaza City. Um, the uh, biography describes how his uh, father uh, underwent conversion to Islam shortly after he had been born. Um, uh, now, his mother uh, did not go along with the father. She remained Christian, as was her right under the law. Muslim men uh, were permitted to be married to uh, Jewish and Christian women. The reverse was not possible. So the father's conversion had uh, little legal impact uh, on the marriage uh, of these two, uh, of, of the formerly Christian husband to his Christian wife. It had a profound impact, however, on, uh, on uh, the, the children, uh, one of whom was a child named Dahak, which is an Arabic word basically meaning the jester, the one who laughs. According to the story, the Haq um, uh, basically nurtured a private spiritual identity as a Christian, even as his father's conversion entailed a public legal conversion of him and his siblings to Islam. He's described as hating his father, so much so that when his father died, he formally renounced Islam, converted to Christianity, or rather returned to Christianity, became a monk of the important monastery of Marsava, today in the West Bank, um, and uh, as the story goes, he was essentially betrayed by various members of his own family, including siblings uh, who did not go over to Christianity like he, like he did. He uh, refused to renounce his faith and was executed for apostasy. So again, apologies for the extremely quick uh, overview, um, but the key themes that emerge in the life of Bachus as he came to be known after his conversion um, are the importance of religiously mixed families. We typically view the conversion of the uh, Islamic Near East as occurring through things like taxation, uh, conquest, political and social pressure. But the marriage of Muslims and Christians, along with an array of non-Muslim groups, was also an extremely important driver of conversion and may have indeed been one of the most powerful engines of Islamization in this period. Um, we've seen how the conversion of the father had profound legal consequences for the children, so much so that they had a uh, public legal identity, or Bachus at least, had a public legal identity as a Christian, uh, or rather as a Muslim, and seemingly a private spiritual identity uh, as a Christian. So those are major themes in the history of, the, uh, of conversion in the early Islamic period that we see exemplified in the life of this extremely interesting martyr. The next one I want to very briefly introduce, introduce to you is probably the single most famous martyr of the early Islamic period, uh, uh, an individual who was born under the Arabic name of Rauh, but who underwent uh, a miraculous uh, conversion to Christianity and came to be known as Anthony. Um, he is also the subject of an Arabic biography, another very early example of Christian Arabic literature, uh, this one written at the beginning of the ninth century. And it describes a, a young man in Damascus who belonged to the tribe of Quraysh. 
Those of you who know Islamic history will recognize Quraysh as being the, uh, the, the tribe of none other than the Prophet Muhammad. So whether this person is real or not, this detail, the name Al-Qurashi, is meant to signal that he is a very important Muslim. We're talking about a Muslim blue blood, far from a nobody, a person of significance and status. The biography describes how he lives next to a church in Damascus on Mount Qasiyun. You see a modern uh, uh, picture of Mount Qasiyun today. And apparently his dwelling was beside a Christian church of St. Theodore. Um, he was in the habit of harassing the Christians as they walked in and out of the church, including during the mass. And the story describes how on one day he attempted to fire an arrow at the icon of St. Theodore, very much like the ninth century icon of St. Theodore you see on the screen in front of you. Instead of piercing the icon, however, the arrow miraculously turned around in midair, came back at Rawah and stabbed him in the hand. Um, he fell unconscious. And this, in conjunction with other miracles, set him on a, on a, a very rapid and sudden path to Christianity. Uh, the miracles essentially convince him of the truth of Christianity uh, and prompt him to renounce his ways. And as with other martyrs, uh, his conversion to Christianity leads him to embrace the monastic life. He ultimately returns to Damascus, where he confronts his former Muslim relatives. He refuses to renounce his new Christian faith. He is sent to uh, the very highest authority in the land, uh, the Abbasid Caliph Harun al-Rashid, who tries him uh, and executes him for apostasy. Um, as I mentioned, this is the single most uh, famous uh, martyr of the early Islamic period, famous as measured in the sheer number of times that his biography is copied across many different manuscripts, the sheer number of times that the story is translated or adapted in different languages, the sheer number of times in which Anthony appears in the liturgical calendars of, tradition, of various Christian churches, not just the Melkite church uh, who first developed the cult, but indeed many of its ecclesiastical rivals. For me, the life of Anthony is fascinating as a window into this uh, possible window into this phenomenon of true apostasy of Muslims converting to Christianity, um, a rare phenomenon, but uh, an extremely interesting one, and historically speaking, one that is largely unstudied. It is a story that uh, flirts uh, dangerously on the edge between uh, reality and representation. As I mentioned, it is a biography that is filled with accounts of miracles, that is uh, filled with literary tropes that we find appearing in other hagiographical texts of the period, so much so that many people have questioned whether Anthony and Qurashi lived at all. Regardless of that debate and wherever one finds oneself on that fraught question, the life of Anthony also helps us see very vividly uh, the purpose of hagiographical writings in this period. So these are accounts potentially of real events, but they were also written with an audience in mind and with a message to tell them. Stories of high status converts to Christianity like Rao um, were an essential feature in interreligious polemics uh, in this time. They were stories that were designed to uh, celebrate Christianity as a true religion and to condemn Islam as a false religion. And there was no better way of proving this in literary terms than by highlighting the experiences of high status, high prestige Muslims uh, who allegedly converted. Variations of this story um, in later periods speak uh, not merely of the conversion of Muslim aristocrats like Rauh al-Qurashi, but indeed speak about the surreptitious conversion of none other than the caliph, the leading, uh, the, 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 the head of the medieval Islamic empire. So the life of Anthony is a window into a possible history of religious change, but even more importantly, it is a window into the mentalities um, that led Christians to write these texts and to venerate these martyrs. Um, 
I realize that we're uh, drawing near to uh, a conclusion, and I want to leave time for questions because in my experience in this era of Zoom, I think interaction is often the most interesting and exciting part uh, of someone's presentation. Um, so I've given you a, a broad overview of the history of conversion. The history of conversion is a history of Islamization, of course, and it is also a history of de-Christianization. These are, um, these are um, inverse processes, yin and yang. So the central contention in my book is that uh, lives of these Christian martyrs, which are found across the full stretch of the uh, uh, early Islamic world, I haven't had the chance to go into uh, examples that come from the Islamic West, from places like Cordoba. I haven't had the chance to speak of uh, examples from the Caucasus, places like Georgia and Armenia, where we find rich evidence uh, for martyrs uh, and the kinds of themes I've been discussing. So the central claim of the book and my study of these biographies um, is that they can tell us something about the broader process of conversion that we can't see through other types of historical evidence. Of course, for anyone who studies the history of conversion through these texts, the key question is, do these martyrs represent a rule? Are they representative of the society in which they live? Are they representative of the broader process of conversion? Or are they exceptions to the rule? And I think the answer is it has to be a bit of both. The vast majority of Christians who converted to Islam in the early Islamic period, and indeed for uh, generations and generations to come down to the present, very, very few, few, very, very few of these people uh, ever returned to their original faith. So in this sense, the apostates highlighted in the lives of the martyrs um, are very much exceptions to the rule. The violent death that many of these people suffered, whether as a result of apostasy, whether as a result of blasphemy, is also exception, is also exceptional. Um, uh, these were indeed capital punishments, but it is by no means clear that these capital punishments were frequently, if ever, really meted out. So we're looking at individuals who pushed the boundaries of the law and suffered the consequences as a result, often less as a result of particular religious tensions uh, or general religious tensions than particular um, contextual issues in their own place and their own time. So this is the importance of reading these texts historically with an eye to their very narrow uh, context, not in reference to broad uh, patterns of relations between the two communities. Now, what can these very broadly tell us about the pace and the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the pace and the broad arc of the history of conversion at this time? Specifically, when does violence against Christians, as reflected in the lives of the martyrs, um, seem to increase? And I say this with uh, great trepidation, recognizing that this is a semi-random collection of experiences and not per se representative of society at large. So having expressed that caveat, I will now table it and, and maybe give you a bit of a, I'll conclude with a, a slightly speculative argument about what these tell us about the history of religious change. As I argue in the book, it seems that um, violence against Christians as reflected in these narratives um, seems to... Uh, track the emergence of an imperial society across the greater Middle East, um, or rather the shift of the medieval Middle East from a post-conquest society in which Muslims and Christians were differentiated as conquerors and conquered peoples, as rulers and subjects, as, uh, as tax-collecting soldiers in the cities and tax-paying agriculturalists in the countryside. Those sorts of tidy divisions which had kept groups apart for much of early Islamic history began to disappear as time went on, as conversion increased, and as these groups began to live side by side, uh, often sharing common spaces and cities as Muslim settlement of the countryside increased, and as things like intermarriage between Muslims and Christians also increased. 
So in other words, we're talking about a society that goes from one that is highly stratified, highly divided, to one in which Christians and Muslims are mixed up ever more. And this process of mixture, this process of cohabitation seems to provoke certain anxieties about religious frontiers and religious boundaries that had not existed before. And with those anxieties come greater efforts to police those frontiers that are in turn expressed um, in greater sensitivity to apostasy laws and blasphemy laws, and in turn on the Christian side are expressed um, in, uh, in more fervent efforts uh, to double down on Christian belief and identity, especially in public places. So that's the first conclusion. We're talking about it. these martyrs as, a, as, a, as reflecting broader changes in the Islamic society of the 7th, 8th, and 9th centuries. And the second point, and this is the one on which I conclude, much as I think the martyrs track broader social changes, I think that the phenomenon of Christian martyrdom also tracks an evolving sense of orthodoxy within Islam. Um, Islam is a religion that is born uh, into the full light of history. Uh, by that, I mean it is in the business of governing and is in the business of defining uh, its own theology and law and core beliefs at much the same time. And it takes time for Muslims to define what it meant to be an orthodox Muslim. And as that picture became clearer and clearer, and as therefore the frontiers between Islamic belief and the belief of the various non-Muslim peoples across the empire became ever crisper, there was a clearer sense of orthodoxy and thus a clearer and clearer idea of what constituted heterodoxy or heresy. And I think in this evolution of a concept of Islamic orthodoxy, there were greater and greater sensitivities to people who uh, flagrantly trespassed these new lines that were being imposed from the top down. And this is where we find uh, these apostates. This is where we find these blasphemers and thus the stories of their lives as preserved in these uh, martyrdom accounts. Um, so I've spoken for a bit longer than I had hoped, but I hope this has given you a panoramic view of the history of conversion and then what we can know about the history of conversion through the very interesting special experiences of these martyrs, as well as the people who wrote about them in the years uh, and decades after their deaths.